Section 62, Split Up Microsoft. In other words, Microsoft enjoys monopoly power in the relevant market. Findings of Fact, U.S. v. Microsoft, November 1999. On June 7, 2000, the verdict known as the Final Judgment was delivered. I read the PDF, itself a scanned copy of a fax from the legal team, on my BlackBerry flying back from a Windows conference. In-flight connectivity didn't exist, but the BlackBerry magically worked over the pager network, downloading a few sentences at a time while I avoided looking like I was using a prohibited electronics device in the air. Quoting, The plan shall provide for the completion within 12 months of the expiration of the stay pending appeal set forth in Section 6.0a of the following steps. The separation of the operating systems business from the applications business and the transfer of the assets of one of them, the separated business, to the separate entity along with A, all personnel, systems, and other tangible and intangible assets, including intellectual property, used to develop, produce, distribute, market, promote, sell, license, and support the products and service services of the separated business, and B, such other assets as are necessary to operate the separated business as an independent and economically viable entity. Final judgment, June 7th, 2000. Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson ordered the breakup of Microsoft into two companies. Though there was a debate over whether it should be two or three companies, after listing all the federal and state laws Microsoft violated. The punditry and press all but declared victory. The dragon had been slayed. Magazine covers across mainstream and industry press featured all varieties of busted and gotcha. The online version includes the front page of the New York Times with the headline ordering the breakup of the company from June 8th, 2000. The litigation began way back in July 1994 when I was working for Bill G as his technical assistant. As a lawsuit by the Department of Justice, the DOJ, Microsoft and DOJ entered a consent decree to resolve the case. But then, in 1998, the DOJ sued Microsoft in civil court for violating the terms of that agreement as it pertained to how Microsoft licensed Windows to PC makers. Microsoft initially lost the case, but on appeal, it was ruled that Windows 95 bundling Internet Explorer did not violate the agreement. There was a catch, though. The resolution of this case did not preclude further action for violating antitrust law. Filed May 18, 1998, the U.S. Justice Department and 20 state attorneys general sued Microsoft for violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The suit charged the company with abusing its market power to impede competition, especially Netscape. Running over 50 pages, the initial complaint read like the greatest hits of emails, comments, and things we probably should not have said. All the classics were there, from we are going to cut off their air supply, everything they're selling we're going to give away for free, to you see, browser share is job one. I do not feel we're going to win on our current path. We are not leveraging Windows from a marketing perspective. To integrate with Windows to increase Internet Explorer share. In the original complaint in May 1998, the plaintiffs argued Microsoft committed all of those offenses. It is worth reading them, and I've included all of the cases online as well. The trial and subsequent rulings were low points for Microsoft. While the office team was not part of the offending acts, it was very much a part of the remedy being tossed about. From Bill G's deposition performance to the botched courtroom exhibits to the lack of voices of support from so many that benefited from Windows, there were plenty of moments to feel awful about. The industry tracked the trial, but the pace of coverage was nothing like we see today with instant commentary and analysis at the speed of Twitter. 
By and large, most employees did not follow the trial day to day, and even the daily summaries that went out to some execs were not the most important thing each day. Even with all these negatives, the team of people at the trial were working incredibly difficult and long hours with a strong sense of purpose and pride. At an exec staff meeting, a Windows executive returning from the trial said to me they genuinely believed it was Microsoft's best people doing some of their best work. There was optimism throughout the trial until we lost. Some aspects of the case stuck with me more than others. One in particular was the finding about bundling Internet Explorer with Windows. The judge wrote in the Conclusions of Law, April 3rd, 2000, that Microsoft's decision to tie Internet Explorer to Windows cannot truly be explained as an attempt to benefit customers and improve the efficiency of the software market generally, but rather as a part of a larger campaign to quash innovation that threatened its monopoly position. I felt that being explicitly called out for building products to quash innovation was particularly brutal. With the passage of time, I've come to recognize that if you have faith in the system that governs us, it is fine to disagree with a particular ruling, but one must accept it as fact because the system does. Even if I disagree, most everyone else will go by what the court held to be the facts determined through that process. I held and continue to hold a product person's view of product development, which is that the work of the product development is somehow a higher calling and done for the benefit of customers, partners, and the market. It's fair to say this is a horribly naive view that doesn't consider the realities of running a business in a brutally competitive market. This belief of mine would be put to the test later in my career when I found myself managing Windows. In the findings of fact in November 1999, the judge found that the company held a monopoly, an important finding that forever changed how Microsoft was viewed. Following that, was a lot of back and forth about the penalties. But once the company was labeled as a monopoly, something was going to happen. Quoting, Viewed together, the three main facts indicate that Microsoft enjoys monopoly power. First, Microsoft's share of the market for Intel-compatible PC operating systems is extremely large and stable. Second, Microsoft's dominant market share is protected by a high barrier to entry. Third, and largely as a result of that barrier... Microsoft customers lack a commercially viable alternative. USV Microsoft Findings of Fact, November 5th, 1999. It was in that final judgment in June 2000 that the judge ordered a structural remedy and the splitting of Microsoft into two companies. One company was to be the Windows company and the other was to be made up of the rest of Microsoft, including Office. The case had finally hit close to home. Looking back, this was a very long road. The investigation started more than six years earlier after the Federal Trade Commission dropped its case in a deadlocked vote and passed the authority to DOJ. I remember the early meetings from when I was working for Bill and how crazy all this felt at the time. While perhaps at the highest level, the complaints did not change, the details and reasoning changed as the company saw more success. There was a subsequent case focused on violating the original settlement that lasted well into 1998. There was even a moment of daylight in that case when an appeals court ruled in May of that year that Microsoft could indeed integrate any software it would like into Windows so long as consumers benefited. Then came this massive antitrust lawsuit on the heels of that small victory, often referred to internally as the big day. It is amazing to think how much the industry changed over time. Windows 95 and the internet came to be, and many said the industry shifts were just starting, yet the case was still there. 
The arguments put forth by Microsoft insisting that the market forces were already at work to disrupt Microsoft fell on deaf ears and were viewed as self-serving. The consensus was that Microsoft had reached an invincible, all-powerful stature that needed to be corrected. As a practical matter, once a trial started, little would change for Microsoft unless, well, we lost. Losing took a much longer time for both sides. Plus, there was always an appeal. Litigation at this level is a slog and a true test of patience. In high school, we once had a guest speaker in social studies class who had a role in the AT&T breakup lawsuit that had recently ended. He told us he had worked on his entire legal career on that one case. We were dumbfounded. I know now know plenty. As a practical matter, once a trial started, little would change for Microsoft unless, well, we lost. Losing took a much longer time for both sides. Plus, there was always an appeal. Litigation at this level is a slog and a true test of patience. In high school, we once had a guest speaker in social studies class who had a role in the AT&T breakup lawsuit that had finally just ended. He told us he had worked his entire legal career on that case. We were dumbfounded. I now know plenty of Microsoft lawyers who worked nearly their entire professional career on our case. That day in June, it obviously felt like we lost. Badly. Microsoft had always been comfortable in the context of litigation, perhaps owing to Bill G's upbringing as the son of a prominent Seattle attorney. The earliest days of the company were characterized by a lawyerly open letter to hobbyist penned by Bill G in 1976. In the letter, he argued that software should be royalty-based products like music. The letter was controversial in a world where all the money was in hardware with freely bundled and shared software but ushered in the pure play software company we now know. In all fairness to Bill, the hardware side of the industry was characterized by secrecy, patents, and its own litigation. The online version includes this letter that Bill wrote when he was not even 21. It also is from Microsoft with a hyphen and a capital S. The early software industry wrestled with how law applied to this new type of product, a product required for hardware, dreamed up like art, and manifested in a proprietary digital encoding. In 1988, a decade before the antitrust suit, Microsoft found itself in what could be described as a straightforward contract dispute, and what Apple would characterize more broadly as an intellectual property dispute in Apple v. Microsoft. Apple agreed to license elements of the Macintosh software for use in Windows 1.0, partially in exchange for an effort to secure Microsoft applications for Macintosh, Excel in particular. The case was front and center of the industry as Apple claimed a right to the look and feel of the Macintosh, which seemed to many rather unbounded, though obviously their product was unique on many levels. In a key ruling for all of software, the court stated, Apple cannot get a patent-like protection for the idea of a graphical interface or the idea of a desktop metaphor. While ultimately resolved in Microsoft's favor in 1996, based on contractual terms, the litigation served to condition employees to the hurry up and wait and the ups and downs of the winding nature of the U.S. legal system. For years at the annual company meeting, someone inevitably submitted a question for Bill about the Apple v. Microsoft case, and every year he would say there's nothing new, but that we felt good on the merits. In between those times, the various motions and courtroom events were rather baffling to non-lawyers, somewhat like trying to watch a cricket match for the first time and not being sure if something good was happening or for which team. The online version includes trade press coverage of Apple v. Microsoft. 
Litigation was a significant part of the industry in the early days of software, as the rules of the road were established for software patents, copyright, and contracts. Another closely watched case was Lotus Corporation, a giant, suing Borland International, an upstart, for copyright violation in 1990. Borland had essentially cloned the interface of Lotus 123 and expanded upon it in its Quattro Pro product to smooth the transition from 123 to Quattro by providing a compatibility mode. This case had profound impact on the ability for upstarts to enter an existing market because whether it was user interface or APIs, providing compatibility by reverse engineering without having access to source code or trade secrets was key to expanding the industry. This case was decided in Borland's favor, allowing for the copyright of Lotus implementation, but not the expression of user interface in the Borland product. The online version includes trade press coverage of Lotus v. Borland. These, as with other legal matters, were often discussed more as curiosities than existential risks to the company, at least among us less senior people that had no inside scoop on the matters. Even when working with Bill G., a time when many of the issues were front and center for the company, he did a remarkable job of compartmentalizing the challenges. Importantly, except for the yearly question at the company all-hands meeting, these topics were hardly discussed within product groups or large forums, and we were always cautioned to do what we believed was in the best interests of products and not to try to think like lawyers, a cultural challenge I would face when I moved to the post-antitrust Windows team. As these suits were winding their way through the system, Microsoft's rise to the largest software company and its new power position as an unabated leader continued. From the outside, Microsoft had all the appearance of a growing software empire. From the inside, Microsoft was paranoid and felt everything was fragile and could evaporate at any moment, just as we had seen happen to the fortunes of nearly every technology company before us. I can't emphasize this point enough. Microsoft saw all the previous microcomputer companies, many application companies, standalone word processing companies, and of course the mainframe and mini computer companies all but vanish in the blink of an eye, falling victim to a new generation of technology. I mean, Mark Andreessen himself had predicted that Netscape would render Windows a poorly debugged set of device drivers. He later attributed that statement to Bob Metcalf. And Microsoft's nemesis, Scott McNeely at Sun Microsystems, never missed an opportunity to ridicule the quality and utility of Office. Disappearing was one thing, but from a business strategy perspective, Microsoft was deeply concerned about having our competitive advantage removed by non-market forces. We'd seen what happens when a company like IBM or Intel are made to surrender their earned advantage, or in business school terms, their moat. Somewhere between fragile upstart and unstoppable force was the truth. It would take more than a decade from the first regulatory inquiries until resolution reaching some sort of detente with regulators around the world. In hindsight, it shouldn't have been a surprise that a company should become the most well-capitalized company in the world and as a result, be subject to regulation. Microsoft views that we were just selling software at very low prices that customers and partners put to good use seemed rather quaint and naive. The government was struggling to wrap itself around how such a huge success could come to exist without any involvement of regulators. The rise of the internet, originally funded by government research, only served as a reminder that something huge was shaping our economy and was essentially free of any government oversight. Normal issues that governments oversee, such as product quality and safety, sales and marketing practices, even employment procedures, had all gone unchecked. That a company maintained unfettered influence over massive societal changes was basically unacceptable. 
It was always difficult to separate out the problems needing to be solved. Was it the problem of what Microsoft did, how Microsoft did that, or was it simply the scale of success Microsoft achieved? This mismatch of perspective, Microsoft as a paranoid upstart just trying to keep up with the popularity of his products and a government blindsided by unregulated corporate growth and power created a difficult situation, which required the legal and regulatory systems to resolve. Analysts, pundits, former regulators, and competitors can propose remedies as if the success of Microsoft was an affliction faster than the system can understand the problem. Few in government had any expertise in software and address it in the context of existing laws. Competitors complained about one set of problems. Consumers complained about another. Partners had their own issues. Economists and academics had views too. The law had a whole different set of issues. Two things were notable about the early time in Microsoft's massive success and power. First, parties were seeking a remedy for this problem that was not yet defined, as we often like to say. We lacked specifics. Even with a 50-page complaint, it was simply the scale of Microsoft? Was it that Microsoft had come to dominate the operating system market for PCs? Was Windows a monopoly? Were PCs to be treated like a common utility? Was Microsoft's business model of low price, high volume problematic? Was it unacceptable for one company to sell operating systems and to sell applications as well? Or was this about some other type of product integration, such as browsers and media players? These questions did not have obvious or consistent answers back then, even among third parties. The complaint said Microsoft could not integrate a browser into Windows, but few complained when Windows added networking, file management, or graphics for games. There were examples of common business practices to counter every complaint. Second, assuming agreement was reached on the problems to be solved, what would be the right regulatory framework? How do you solve the problems identified? The experts in regulation and antitrust were themselves products of the incredibly long-running cases of IBM, AT&T, and others. In the technology industry, we looked at the IBM case and saw litigation solving the problem long after it mattered. The whole industry had moved on to mini computers, workstations, and then PCs for mainframes, and it seemed this case was still going on, a condition that contained a view that regulating the fast-moving technology industry did not make sense the way it might for the industrial economy. The AT&T case seemed remote as it was established as a monopoly and primarily involved physical cables, and much of the unleashing of competition that took place came about not because of the new regulatory framework as much as what AT&T fought for. For example, they quickly sold off the cell phone operation for a small amount just to focus their win on long-distance lines. But the breakup of AT&T was on everyone's mind, and that led to calls to break up Microsoft. It seemed clear there was a monopoly. It needs to be broken up into pieces. The debate over whether regulation simply stifled one of the most inventive and successful companies in U.S. history continued. This set up for a confrontation as the process wound through, with each side articulating extremes and neither side particularly good at stating problems or matching problems and remedies. Microsoft, especially from its paranoid mindset as an upstart, insisted that it had done nothing wrong but make products people bought, and so anti-interference was paramount to killing off innovation just as it happened to IBM. The punditry would opine about the need for choice and alternatives and products and suggest that Microsoft was itself already stifling innovation. All of this activity changed the company's narrative. A few years earlier, Bill G. was a boy wonder, the under-30 founder who had grown a new industry for the world through the magic of software. 
By the mid-1990s, Bill and the company were ruthless competitors who rolled over every other entity, dictated terms for the industry, and above all, could enter any market and dominate. It was this fear of what Microsoft might choose to do next that drove the most extreme views of regulatory remedies. The government needed to do something to prevent Microsoft from becoming a real-world ramjack from Kurt Vonnegut's novels. The regulatory norms over a new industry were unavoidable. The governments were empowered to provide oversight, and there was simply no way the newest and seemingly largest and most important industry would escape regulation. It did not matter how we thought of the fragility of our industry or even how much evidence the IBM case offered as to the futility of regulating technology. We generally learned what little we knew about antitrust in school, as it seemed to originate, in industries where a physical lock on a limited supply existed. Microsoft was a company that created an industry with none of those physical barriers, pioneering a licensing and business approach never used before, open licensing versus closed integration, even among the first to charge for software. There were many times we thought it odd that laws written for an entirely different set of circumstances would simply apply. To legal scholars and regulators, such a view was naive and self-serving. Of course laws could apply, the lawyers would tell me. We wish someone could have made a good argument as to why technology was different than, say, banks, telephones, farms, oil, autos, theaters, or shoes. But technology was not different. We quickly learned that trying to tell the regulators, or though immersed in the legal system, that technology was different, was poorly received at best and destructive to the dialogue at worst. Simply being new was not a free pass through the system, no matter how techno-optimistic we might have been. Rather, we were naive. On the other hand, it would have been equally fair to have asked for those calling for remedies to do a better job articulating the problem being solved. And therein lies the challenge. Jumping to remedies that so clearly did not address the problem only made one question motives and create the appearance that the parties were further apart. Championing remedies that seem to be designed to simply kneecap a single company don't serve an industry or an economy. The political versus legal nature of proposed remedies only gets worse when we experience the grandstanding in the halls of the Capitol or endless quotes and op-eds in national publications. Given the inevitable, but also the wide gap between parties, the process took a long time. It wasn't debilitating as some might have suggested. There was learning, discovery, and socialization. The process was more like having a chronic condition with a relapsing, remitting pathology. Long periods of time went by without symptoms. Then suddenly and unexpectedly, there was a flare-up, like the opening of a new complaint by a regulator, a country getting involved for the first time, a legal filing, or even a dramatic courtroom moment. We were in an ongoing state of hurry up and wait, as Bill Newcomb, email Bill N., Microsoft's chief legal strategist during this time, would tell me. The process often felt like those NASA drills where you knew at any moment the lights would turn red and steam would fly out of pipes and a siren would sound, signifying a crisis, but you just never knew when that would happen. Even after all that, the conclusion of the case felt anticlimactic. With these kinds of cases, the results are rarely as dramatic as early predictions and tend to be far more specific and, well, rational solutions to identified problems. Regulation does work when it is eventually created through the system. It might not be ideal for a newly formed company or for one hoping for more extreme remedies, but it ends up designed to solve the problems that regulators can solve. The problems Microsoft ultimately showed to have pertained to how business was conducted. In a sense, these were understood to be problems of monopoly maintenance. Being declared a monopoly was certainly not fun, but in many ways, it was reality. 
Windows had, in fact, won. It was time for Microsoft to admit that. Time would show that Microsoft's argument that technology winning in one era will have a hard time winning in the next was decidedly true. Continuing to debate the end state wasn't only futile, but not done. Once a company loses in these cases, it becomes necessary to make way for the winners to own the narrative. This might be the most difficult part to live through in the near term. Over time, the long term, these same patterns will play out again because to the victors go the spoils or the narrative.